1: What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man.
0: The gospel never tells us something to do. The gospel tells us about something that's been done.
1: Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp and Rachel Miller, my co-host, is here too, and we have a returning guest. Um Amy Bird. I think it's like fourth fourth or fifth time on the podcast. And we're going to talk to her about her new book, The Sexual Reformation, Restoring the Dignity and Personhood of Man and Women. And we're really excited to talk to her about this book. So Amy, just uh, before we get started, could you share just a little bit about who you are and and why you wrote this book?
0: sure and let me just say it's great to be back on with you girls I just love are you gals theology gals um, I am a listener and always complimented to be invited back so thank you but yeah so I am an author and a speaker and I really got into writing out of my own sense of loneliness as a thinking woman in the church you know as a young woman in the church I'm not so so much in that category now but um, I just I just remember, you know, wanting to take my sanctification more seriously, wanting to grow as a disciple in the church and, and not having an outlet for that, not being invested in, in that way, which led me to ask a lot of questions um, about discipleship and about men and women in the church. And um, I was buying women's resources and, and wanting something with more theological depth but getting instead a lot of um things about you know what we're to do around the house and 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 um you know the proper woman's roles kind of thing. And so I began writing wanting to, you know, first talk about and um encourage women in the church that hey, we're all theologians and what we think really matters and it affects our everyday living. And and that was received pretty well. Um, that book ended up getting me a lot of opportunities to be able to speak in different churches and meet a lot of different women and, and even opportunities um, to meet, you know, those kind of more in the academic world um, and, and to do podcasts and, and conferences and things like that. Um, but I found then a camaraderie that there, there, there were a lot of women struggling with the same thing as me. And so um that led me to write more. And I think each one of my books is kind of built on the next one because um, you dress one area and that uncovers some other questions. Um, so I've, I've written about um, investing in women in the church. Um, I've written about male-female relationships as brothers and sisters in the church and um, you know friendship in the church. I've written about um, you know, the damaging teaching that has been saturated in the broader evangelical church about um so-called biblical manhood and womanhood um and i I wanted to with each book give an invitation to something you know more beautiful that we actually find in scripture that's a lot more rich um talking about you know what discipleship is and the covenantal reading of scripture um, looking at the uses of the male and the female voice in Scripture and then just like looking at our great honor and responsibilities as men and women disciples in the church. Um and then this book um this book is interesting because i base a ground a lot of my work on the song of songs. And the song became you know i i, I face a a good amount of um harassment i could call it i guess after my last book recovering from biblical manhood and womanhood and particularly from leaders in my own denomination that i was in and it was a very painful trial for me and um the song of songs ministered to me so deeply and in it i was you know i really found like in concentrate that theology that has been lighting up for me all over scripture but here we see in the Song. Um, the whole meta-narrative of scripture um, in Concentrate. And so uh, the early church fathers called it um, the holy of holies of scripture. Like if you want to, um, if you want to find in scripture where you could have the most intimate communion with Jesus and, and experiencing his presence with you in his word, go to the song of songs. Like that's where you kind of get behind the veil and, and you hear these words, Christ is speaking to his bride that, the collective bride, um, the church, and and to each individual soul of of each believer. Uh, So it it just ministered to me in such a deep way that it it made me want to um, share that. Uh, Wow, look, when we see in the Song of Songs is uh, a much richer theology, um, that there is a, a meaningfulness behind our sexuality as male and female. Our bodies tell a story. And I wanted to help Christians better understand our sexuality as gift and then to, to grasp that eschatological story, our bodies tell of Christ's love for his church. So I really do think that that we do need a sexual reformation in the church and that that is how we're going to be able to do that is, is by first looking at the meaningfulness in which we're made.
2: Um, I really enjoyed reading your book. It, as, as with all of your books, it, was, uh, it challenged me it, and it helped me. You know, consider and look at 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 various passages of scripture. Um, you know, to really think through what I was reading and think about how how it all fits together. And, um, and thank you for for your heart, especially your heart for discipleship for women in the church. Um, and I know it's one of those things you talk about you know, you found, you know, like-minded women as you started writing, and that's certainly been the case for us as well as we've been Mm -hmm. doing the podcast. And it's, it's very encouraging because it does often feel very lonely for us
1: uh, Mm
2: -hmm. in the world. But um, you wrote in the book early on that um, as opposed to revolution, a sexual reformation looks to God's word as it has been read, interpreted and confessed by his church. And I wondered if you could expand a little on that and what the title of the book means. Yeah, so I'm not trying to turn
0: over tables, you know, and and start a revolution or anything like that. Um, the The subtitle of my book is "Restoring the Dignity and Personhood of Man and Woman," and, and that's where I think we do need a bit of a reformation, a sexual reformation in the church. It's it's not only about women; it's about men too. And um, the story that both the both of our bodies tell and our sexuality, and and how it's being. Um, suppressed um, in a lot of the teach current teaching that we are have that we are being sold in the evangelical church now. Um, the current teaching is is very much focused on authority and submission, and mature masculinity is is defined on on how he can manage women, how he can lead women, and mature femininity is defined and how uh, we can find spot male leadership and nurture male leadership. And um, I think that there's something much richer in scripture. And um, even though we talk about both man and woman being made in the image of God, um, I feel like we're still carrying, and I know, Rachel, you've written about this some in your book as well, um, these Greek ideas, about man and woman, and, and I think that there's still very much an even an Aristotelian metaphysic of sex polarity that has just permeated the teaching in the church of of male superiority, and of of woman being um, inferior in her in her nature, in her virtue, and um, her wisdom. So I kind of start in the beginning of the book with some quotes from, you know, some of the beloved church fathers uh, that, you know, ones that, you know, I love to read Augustine. (laughs) I'm not saying let's throw these, these, these men out and cancel them. Um, But there are some very harmful teachings, um, uh, you know, things that they say about men and women and women being uh, of small intelligence, of men having superior reason, women being the uh, inferior flesh. And, you know, from, from Augustine, to Thomas Aquinas, to John Calvin, to John Knox, to William Googe. It just keeps traveling up. And until now, I feel like we have some better language, but underneath of it, we still have some of these underpinnings of this same teaching. So what I'm saying is not that, oh, we need a capital R reformation, like that we have salvation wrong. Um, but I am saying, let's go back to scripture. And, and see what's being taught to us. What is the theology of man and woman? And um, what is our anthropology? And, and, and let's reform maybe some of these cultural idea, ideas that we have um, to what scripture is saying, because we, we like to say that the church is always in need of reformation, like continual reformation. And, you know, I'm just kind of challenging that saying, well, do we really believe that?
1: One of the challenges is when we're criticizing some of the things that came out of complementarianism, it, mm-hmm. it can sometimes, sometimes easy, not, I'm, I'm not saying this of you, but I'm talking in general to fall into a ditch of we're against these things, but you've not done that, which I very much appreciate. And I, so you really have a focus on what we should be about, what is biblical and one of the things that you focused on is discipleship, which I love because I don't think it's talked about, not not very much, but it, for lay members. So, mm-hmm. and you've talked about this, you know, in your other works, you talked in the beginning about how your work is kind of built on top of, uh,
2: mm-hmm. of
1: each other, which I definitely thought that even reading this book. But how does your vision for discipleship um Or how does this, what you talk about in this book fit into that desire for discipleship in the church?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's what's been the struggle for me all along is um, it's interesting because, you know, within complementarian circles, you hear that, you know, that it's about male headship um, and that, you know, I would say the the least extreme, you know, complementarians would, would say that we uphold. Um, the offices in the church of, you know, particularly the pastors and elders um, to be reserved for qualified men only. And then they also uphold uh, a form of male leadership in the home. However, um, you know, I found that I... I didn't know what space I had as, as a disciple, like in my writing, I've been trying to write to, you know, the rest of the 98% of us who aren't elders and pastors, just on, you know, what are our great responsibility and and honor really as disciples, how we grow, how, how we function as brothers and sisters in the church. And um, I've found a lot of pushback in talking about women's agency as a disciple, um, it, and I found that it's, it's got different, different expectations than than male agency as disciples. And so I found this very troubling and, and unbiblical. And, and to me, it revealed, um, okay, there's more to this than what we're saying. And, and another interesting part mm-hmm. of that too, um, you know, and I wanted to kind of tag this onto what I was saying earlier is that, you know, so many of the definitions, of of mature femininity and and masculinity um, and biblical manhood and womanhood, they're completely horizontal. Um, It's all about our relationships to one another here now. And they're they're under this grid of authority and submission where I think we need to start with a a vertical (laughs) definition. Like I think we need to be all um, moving toward communion of persons as we have our eyes on Christ. And I think, you know, that's for discipleship, for, you know, defining how we function as men and women. Even I think we need to start with that vertical element.
2: In in dealing with the song, and I, I know it, it, I'm guessing it's probably true for most of us. Most of people who are listening I know it's true for me. Um, not heard a lot of sermons on the song. Not heard read a lot of yeah. books on the song. Um, you know, and 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 often you get what you do here are kind of some wildly disparate ideas about how to interpret, how to look at what's there, what to appreciate from it. You know, I'm mm-hmm. thinking of the the Mark Driscoll type stuff from some years back with the song <laughs> and trying not to think about Mark Driscoll in the song. Um, <laughs> right. But um, what are some of the most common approaches for interpreting the song?
0: Yeah. So, and, and that's something that's really changed because from, well, you know, even in, uh, ancient Jewish commentary; it was it was interpreted as Yahweh's love for Israel. You know, it was an allegory, and and then the early church did the same thing. Uh, they interpreted it as an allegory of Christ's love for the church and for the soul of each individual believer. And and through the medieval times, you know, all the way up until like the Enlightenment, um, this is the way the song was interpreted. And and there was so much written about the song during that time uh many sermons that we still have from like Gregory of Nyssa and uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, um, um origin, and then also and, and many other church fathers, and, and even like up in the medieval time, like us, St. Teresa of the Villa has meditations on the Song of Songs. Um and it was looked at even as as this, what I was kind of saying, this microcosm of all of scripture, the song was where they would go as kind of a hermeneutical key. If they didn't understand another part in the canon, um, they would, you know, take it back to their interpretation in the song. And then that would help them to read all of scripture better. Um, But then after like the more modern critical age, um, people began, scholars began saying, you know what, like, there was a lot of allegorism which is true there was a lot of allegorism <laughs> we don't need to say that the woman's breast signify the old and the new testament for example <laughs> like we just it's not a code to be cracked everywhere in there um and so there was a little too much of that but they took away the allegory completely and said you know the the early church fathers were just embarrassed by this clear sexual language in scripture and the song is about sexuality and it's its most you know horizontal means it, you know it's love poetry and um you know some would say it's teaching us about virginity and then you know sex within marriage um and others would say uh you know it's just about sexuality in general so we've really kind of steered the ship on how we interpret the song of songs and and like you're saying we don't hear many sermons on it now I think a lot and I hear from a lot of pastors now who are saying, they don't want to touch the song of songs and and they don't really know what to do with it. So um, I find that very interesting because I still, you know, it's in the canon of scripture. So we can't say, sure, we can make plenty and I do make applications um, for our lives now and our sexuality um, from reading the song of songs. But first we have to get that vertical part um, before we can do any of that. And and we got to look at this, you know, there's commentators today saying that, um, the song is not a theological book and that it has nothing to do with God. Well, that's preposterous. It's in the canon of scripture. It's, it has a divine author. Um, you know, as as Jesus said on the road to Emmaus, it's all about him. So, um, we, we can't say there's a book in the Bible that isn't about Jesus. We can't say that there's a book in the Bible that's uh, secular, that's, that's not theological. So, um, yeah, it, there's just so many areas we need to speak into now. It, how, you know, how can we properly critique maybe some of the allegorism, um, from the early church, but save all these treasures that they've given us and passed down to us? How can we, we kind of, um, restore this, this looking at the song again as, as a microcosm of all of scripture and and being able to see that meta narrative in there, and, and help us to read the rest of Scripture and see all the beautiful intertextual references and echoes and allusions um, in the song to other parts of Scripture. So I mean, yeah, there's a lot of ways to answer that question.
2: Do you think just kind of follow up for that? Do you think that a lot of the uh, reluctance among the modern um, pastors, especially within you know, Reformed, which is you know, most of our world um, is somewhat because of, of people like Mark Driscoll and, and those types of sermons that became so tied to yeah. you know, people's ideas.
0: Yeah, I definitely think that that has not made it any better, right? And, and mm-hmm. nobody wants, well, hopefully, nobody wants to be associated mm-hmm. with uh, the Mark Driscoll teaching on the Song of Songs. Right. Um, and, and it's so sad, because Like I was saying, the song is ministered to me deeply. I think that the song really is just full of treasures for the church. And so we can't let Mark Driscoll ruin the gift that God has given us in his word.
1: What can we, as men and women, we do have some men that listen to, learn Mm -hmm. from the song and especially from the metaphor of the church as the bride?
0: Oh, there's so much to learn from the song. I'm still learning so much from it. Um, I would say that a a big part of this is like when we talk about God and when we talk about his love for us um, and, and, you know, us reformed people, we love doctrine, right? Um, And so we have our confessions and they're good and they're important. Um, But there are some things that you just can't capture in uh, doctrinal statements and prepositional statements. Um, and, you know, one person that was interviewing me, Brand- Brandon Showalter, as he put it, he said he heard this somewhere else too, but that, that God doesn't, he isn't beckoning us to the classroom. He's beckoning us into his inner chambers. And so the song uses allegory, metaphor, imagery, um, And it it beckons all of our senses. You know, we're not just brains on a stick. Um, It's beckoning our our smell, our taste, our touch, um, all to teach us about the spousal love of God. So, um, you know, that's something that we got to sing. Or I should say that's something that we get to sing. Um, And that's what I think the big point um, that I would like first want people to get in the Song of Songs is just... God's spousal love for his people. And, and you read the words of the man in the song, and we can read those as Christ's words to us. And, and I think that changes everything. And, and, and we can join with the bride in the song. Like we're given the words to say to him. And they're beautiful. I love that she's immodest. I mean, she just says what's on her heart. She She opens up the song just saying, oh, that he would kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. You know, like she she wants in to the inner chambers by verse four. She's talking about that. So um, I love her boldness. I, I think that gives us boldness to speak with God, and, you know, that he wants us to ask for these things, that he wants intimacy with us, um, not just moral people, um, that, he, that he wants intimacy. He wants to hear our voice. Um, there's a playfulness of the voices in there. I mean, I think we just learned so much about the love of God in the song of
2: songs. Colleen and I were talking uh, before uh, yesterday while we were talking about getting ready for this discussion with you uh, Mm -hmm. and about how we appreciated the discussion that you have in the book on Genesis 3.16. Mm -hmm. I know we've talked before here on the podcast. You and I have talked before. We've written about this, about the Mm -hmm. meaning of desire and Eve. Um, Yeah. I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that, about desire and its meaning in scripture and how the song helps us interpret the meaning of desire in Genesis.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, this could be multiple podcasts on this topic. Right. Um, but just, you know, some of the, the small points in there, or main points in there. Um, yeah, that chapter is called The Woman's Desire and the Desirous Woman. And, you know, the song is, it's a book about desire. Um, which is interesting because here we have, again, God beckoning our desire for him and showing us his desire for us. And, you know, Genesis 3.16 is the first time this word comes up um, in the Hebrew. Uh, it, o- it only occurs three times in the Old Testament. Um, and in Genesis 3.16, we, we have that, um, you know, God telling the woman that her desire will be for her husband and he will rule over her. And so, I, I, in the chapter, I kind of go through some of the different interpretations of this verse, and and, and some of them are, are pretty bad. And and one in particular, um, by Susan Foe, uh, back in the mid-70s, she just wrote a, a journal article. I think it was for Westminster uh, Theological Seminary. And so, we're just talking this eight-page journal article in which she just totally transforms the way that uh, this verse is read. And um, she says that this desire, you know, she turns this desire into something that is um, a woman, the woman wanting to, to kind of usurp the husband's authority. It's, it's contrary to him. And so we even have now in the ESV, instead of um, desire for the husband, it says contrary to her husband so this totally changes the way that we view women in scripture and 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 now in the church at home everywhere Um, if if we look at woman as someone who is is trying to usurp male authority and that man has to make sure that uh she doesn't do that well then then woman's someone who is, is diseased in a way that man isn't you know she can't be trusted um, she's suspect. She needs to be managed. Um, so I I I go through that interpretation and kind of take a survey of how it's been interpreted through history. Some, and then and then we go to the song of songs and we see this word again. Um, and, and this time it's it's the man, uh, who it's the man's desire, the woman speaking it, and she says, um. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Now, all of a sudden we see desire restored and and it's beautiful. Um, And and, and then we see that desire isn't um, something that we need to be redeemed from. It's something that we need to be redeemed to. It's something that we are to cultivate for our heavenly bridegroom. Who is coming back for us? So that too totally transforms the way that we look at woman, and and here we have the woman in the song as as a picture of the bride of Christ's bride, the church. So desire is is a good thing, but it's a good thing that's been thwarted, and um, you know throughout Scripture we see that, um, but that trajectory is then uh, fulfilled and and, and consummated in a lover and his beloved who find their desires met in one another.
1: I think if there was one thing that's kind of been the biggest awakening for me in all these manhood, womanhood discussions, it's the implications um, of what Mm -hmm. we believe about this. I mean, there's so much and I've spent a lot of time. I've been, uh, since some of my family's Jewish, I went back and I went, I want to know what the rabbi said about this. Yeah. Found some especially. interesting, interesting things there. Well, there's something that I was uh that I've thought about a lot and that um you talk about. And it's in the beginning of chapter five when you're talking about, you know, masculine and feminine and some of that stuff. I'm just going to read one little section that um, you say, all of this is curious to me as CBMW seems to be fueling some of the very philosophies they want to combat. Isn't this the same kind of thinking perpetuated by the uh, transgender Mm -hmm. movement? And um, there's a secular podcast that I really, really enjoy. And um, this gentleman discusses all sorts of things and a lot of cultural things. And um he he kind of got thrown into doing a lot of interviews with people from the D trans movement. And their stories okay. are just so fascinating when you hear about how did they get from, you know, thinking they were the other and transitioning. And really their stories, I thought so much about this very thing that that you talk about, because a lot of it is that um, Mm -hmm. exactly what you talk about. So you talk about how the comp movement's beliefs about the definition of masculine and feminine follows a similar approach to the secular world, which I just mentioned, roles we had dropped through our behavior. Why is that a problem? And what is a better approach for us to take?
0: Yeah, it's a problem because you know we're talking about our masculinity and femininity in terms of something that we need to put on. You know, we have to put on these cultural mores um, to to appear more fem- to be more feminine, to be mature femininity, and 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 men too. They have to live up to this, you know, picture of what masculinity is supposed to be. So they too feel like they have to to put on something to be more masculine. Um, and, and, you know, we read in CBMW's books about how we need masculine men and feminine women. Um, that's the same language. It's that same language that uh, that we need to fit in to a certain stereotype. And and I think that is a, a struggle too um, in our culture. Why are we adding to that same Struggle when really our eyes need to be on Christ. Um, you know, as we move toward holy communion of persons, then we're gonna we need to f- foster this mutual knowledge of one another, and and that's gonna result in something a lot richer, something more dynamic, something uh you know a more of a fruitful reciprocity um, through the giving of ourselves in and through our differences. So um, as our eyes are on Christ. Uh, Pope John Paul II kind of talks about how our, our masculinity and our femininity, like that's just like a flavor that comes out, you know, it's there already. I'm, I'm feminine because I'm female. I don't have to become feminine. I don't have to put something on. Um, that's how God has already created me. That's already part of my
1: design. If you listen to some of these D-trans stories, that's actually what they end up, the understanding that they end up coming to, you know, that. They mm. are a girl, so they are feminine in just who they are. And, and it's just interesting hearing mm-hmm. these, this whole Yeah, and you don't have journey. to be more
0: feminine or less feminine, you know, like. Right. Like there's, like, why are we doing this? <laughs>
2: like there's ranking on a scale,
0: right? Right. And, you know, I've heard from so many hurting people in the church, uh, you know, after I wrote uh, No Little Women, even, uh, a woman approached me who, uh, lived in my town, who, um, she's a welder, you know, she had short hair. She was strong. Um, and she didn't fit in, in her church at all. And she didn't feel comfortable in the women's ministries. Um, you know, she wasn't, she wanted to serve more in the church, but the categories they had for women to serve were like making the casserole for so-and-so who had a baby. Um, and she's like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not much of a cook. But I would love to help the tailors move, you know, but only the men were invited to do that. So it it is interesting how, you know, we're shutting people out and and we're missing um, one another's gifts, even.
1: My pastor's wife and I, my old church, did all the demolition on the church apartment Tearing out wow, wow. and drywall. Nice. So, <laughs> but she was, I was not so great at that, but I was willing to learn. And she was just <laughs> so great at that
2: sort of thing,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, that doesn't make her masculine,
2: right? You know, I really enjoyed your chapter that sometimes the last man standing is a woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, love that the title, maybe my favorite to write. <laughs> yeah, you can tell, right? Like, it, it, it's, it's good. Um, you know, you why do you think that some express concern about what they call the feminization of the church? And I oh. think these concerns are valid? You know, how do you respond to that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at the end of the chapter,
0: I get a little more practical and I talk about this very thing that, um, you know, I was invited to speak on, well, I have, you know, several times uh, to speak with church leaders on um, men and women in the church and investing in women in the church And this particular one was like a four day retreat. And, um, there were a lot of Q and A's after each talk. And, and this man kind of took me to the side, a pastor, um, he took me to the side afterwards. Right. Um, he wasn't going to raise his hand and ask this publicly. And he says, you know, I'm tracking with everything you're saying. Like, I, I feel like it's biblical. However, um, I just think that if we start investing in women like this, that that women are very theologically minded and, and have a lot of leadership gifts. And I think that they're going to start filling more leadership roles. And, you know, what do you have to say about how this teaching might lead to the feminization of the church? And ah, it's just so deflating to hear something like that, because you just I've heard it so many times. And, you know, we have books out all about this too, the feminization of Christianity, the church impotent, why men hate going to church, the masculine mandate, you know, um, there's this kind of obsession with saying that, you know, church, you know, we've even heard John Piper say, I think it was John Piper that said Christianity has a masculine feel. Um, So I don't know what all that is supposed to be about. um, Because when we look at the early church, you know, we don't see Paul concerned that, oh, Timothy was uh, taught by his grandmother and his mother. This this could be a a concern. He might be more soft or something, you know. Like Paul is thankful for the teaching, Um, and and we seem to be forgetting that the first churches met in households. I mean, talk about feminizing. This is the woman's world, right? (laughs) Um, That the churches are meeting in, and we see that you know most of the household churches listed in Scripture were in women's. Homes, you know what are we going to make of that? So, and then, as I was saying before, we see that the whole church, men and women in the church, um, yeah, you know, our corporate identity is feminine. You know, in the end, we we are the bride of Christ. Um, so, I find it interesting how uncomfortable some men are with some of that language in Scripture. And um, the the woman in the song, it's, it's interesting because you know, there's a lot of military language ascribed to her. Um, So, you know, we have these, you know, what we would call feminine images ascribed to her, like lily and dove. Um, But then we also see that her neck is a tower, you know, and um, what are we to do with that kind of stuff? So I think that we need to really challenge this uncomfortableness of, this this false threat of the feminization of the church. I mean, the early church was overwhelmingly populated by females in a, a time when the, the general population was not very high in females. Like some people say that, you know, it was two thirds male. We don't know for sure what the numbers were, but then they're saying that it's kind of the flip in the early church that, that it was two thirds female um, and that uh, women would you know a lot of you know they would have what they call secondary conversions like women would come into the church and then their husbands would be converted a lot of the time or you know we have Paul saying that you know if you are coming to church and, and your you know, your husband's an unbeliever your your children are still holy um so the church was growing um by women and, and this wasn't a problem we don't see anywhere um of any of the apostles being concerned about that.
2: You know, it's something I remember hearing, um, and there's one of those stats that gets floated around, comes up a lot uh, around Father's Day and in churches. And like, you know, if... Something like if if the fathers come to church, then the rest of the family will come and become believers. Mm. So many percent of the time, but if when, if the mom is the one that brings them, then it's less likely. Down down. Um, and you know, I looked at those and I'm like, those are very interesting numbers. I wonder where they got the numbers. Like what yeah. what, what survey was it? Where did they come from? And they came from nowhere. Like there is no data anywhere. (laughs) It came from nowhere. nowhere. Like someone said something similar once and that was taken and then expanded on and then added stats to it. And it's fascinating because it gets passed around like fact. And, you know, I I hate that that's, it does that without any good data behind it. But, um, and, and of course I'm not saying that, you know, we should encourage men to go to church. We should encourage you know, husbands and fathers to take their families to church and be involved. Yeah, and, you know, we, we all want that, right? Hundred percent, hundred percent. But when we say, you know, that if the church is too feminine because there's too many women in the church, or it's too feminized because, again, there are women in the church, and that's a bad thing because we shouldn't want women in the church i I just have a hard time (laughs) following how is this bad why is feminine bad you know feminine is not the opposite of all things good it's just Mm -hmm. feminine right so you know we're not arguing for a feminine church we're not arguing for a masculine church we're just arguing for all disciples in the church to be discipled and that's men and women so
0: yes and and interesting that uh and i kind of opened the chapter with the story of how it got titled that way um Mm -hmm back, you know, I don't know how long ago there was a video going around social media about how me and Beth Moore were feminists and, you know, Doug Wilson's daughter's peeling potatoes in her beautiful kitchen and, and cracking jokes about us. And, um, and, and Beth reached out to me and we were just kind of saying, oh, you know, sometimes you just got to laugh at this stuff. We've been called much worse. Right. Right. And we're talking about those kind of things. And then she said, you know, sometimes by the grace and uh, glory of Jesus, the last man standing is a woman. <laughs> and I just thought, oh my goodness, it is a woman. Like, you know, you it's the bride of Christ coming down from God. And so, uh, it, you know, it was just such a, a picture there. And then you see the, the woman in the song. Um, at the end, her brothers are kind of, talking about what are they going to do with their sister you know as she's as she's growing now um and is she going to get married and how are they going to keep her from from men and and she kind of interrupts and she says that i am a wall and my breasts are towers <laughs> and and in her uh the eyes of her lover she finds peace and so i just thought there she is the last woman standing
1: So there's uh Man in my family, I don't want to out him, but a man in my family, there's lots of men in my family, that <laughs> um, I think it was around when your last book came out and we were kind of talking about some of the things in there. And he said, you know, the way that some of these guys, the way that some of these guys talk, it's like they think the whole point of scripture is their version of manhood and womanhood. Like it's a central point to everything. But I actually think with your book, you've kind of brought us back to what are the central points of scripture, which I appreciate. Thank you. Um, Thank you so much. (laughs) But Amy, I think anyone who sees you out there on, on Twitter and, and whatnot, anyone in our circles at all knows that you've been attacked and been through some, some difficult things. And, and I would guess from, going through difficult times in my own life that, you know, you just really cling to Christ through all of that. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult, but you also know the Lord is faithful and with you. Would you have any encouragement for other women that may be going through difficult times? You know, I know you're out there kind of a little bit more in the public eye, but Mm -hmm. there's also women that are fighting some of the stuff in their local churches and, Oh, trying yeah. to navigate Money. this with wisdom and uh, may need some encouragement.
0: Yeah. Um, my encouragement is that Christ loves his church. He loves us. And I, I I, think we need to let that sink into our bones, you know, and, and that's what the song really did for me. Um, you know, there were times where I didn't want to go to church at all like my body was telling me not to go (laughs) um and you know to hear the words of christ um in the song that you know you're beautiful you're you have dove's eyes and and knowing what that means like the dove is a symbol of the holy spirit in scripture so um you know when he looks at her when he looks at me he sees his own spirit he is with me then that's what that means Um, He is with me. Um, So, you know, my encouragement is to, you know, really go into scripture where you can experience Christ's love for you. I know a lot of people, you know, find that in the Psalms too um, and and pray the Psalms. I've found that praying the words in the Song of Songs has has deeply ministered to me and just there's so many treasures in there. But, um, you know, you're not going to be Fixed and healed, um, just by reading scripture in isolation. Um, we need other people, we need advocates, um, we need to remove ourselves from abusive situations. So, um, you know, there's a lot of different steps to that. I think we need to lament, we need to be able, like, and 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 these are all things that just were validated for me in the song songs. Um, you know, I'm so glad the night scenes are in there, uh, and there's. There's so much meaning in them. I'm, you know, still finding more and more. But the bride is abused, you know, by the guardians of the walls, um, and and she names it. But she names it. She's on the ground. She's stripped. Um, she's kind of being mocked, even by the daughters of Jerusalem. You know, why should we look for this man that you're saying that you love? You know, what makes him different? Um, and and she's got her eyes on Christ. She has got her eyes on Christ and she calls him notable among 10,000. And and then she goes on to, you know, describe him in in poetic form. Um, There's so many echoes there too from revelation. And I think, you know, that is a huge part of healing as well is to, to know where we're headed Um, because that the cost then of anything, any of this other stuff is light compared to where we're headed. And, you know, you might look at the song and think, you know, desire costs the woman more than it costs man. Um, but we know that's not true. We know that uh, desire costs Christ the most. Um, and that he gave his His very life for his bride. Um, and that he is ushering us um, behind the veil. He's bringing us there. And that, you know, our Our telos is eternal communion with a triune God and one another. And I just think that perspective, you know, when when the the woman's neck is is described as a tower, um, this military structure that provides protection and and perspective. And I think perspective is so key um, to know this love, the spousal love of God for us, to know the gift that we are. To Christ to know what He has done for that gift and and where we are headed, um, that changes everything.
1: That's oh, very beautifully said. Uh, I wanted to mention for our listeners before we wrap up that I think this would be a great like book group or you know you have some friends at church you want to read a. a read a book through together and at the end of each chapter, there are questions for discussion. And actually let me change what I said. I don't think this is um, I think about women because our Facebook group is women. woman, but mm-hmm. um, our, our old church used to do uh, a book group. We'd get together Monday nights and we'd do, you know, all kinds of different books. And so it's, it's not just a book for women. This would be a great, you know, book group of Thank any you. kind. Yeah. So. yeah. <laughs> Um, so thank you so much, Amy, for, for joining us again. Um, really appreciate it. And of course we, Rachel and I both recommend, go get the book, read it. Mm Um, I learned so much from it. So
0: I'm still learning in the song and I just love, I love that. Um, and it's just such a pleasure to talk to you too. Again, thanks for having me on. And I'll talk about the song with whoever invites me. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Okay, we'll see everybody in a couple weeks.